You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. And we are going to look at a, basically a dispute between Shimon ben Shetach and Yanai HaMelech. Now, just to catch everyone a little bit, to catch everyone up a little bit on um, Jewish history, let's try to um, place ourselves. So, in Bizman Bayi during the times of the Second Temple, when we first came back and we built the Beit HaMikdash, we were, dur- during the return with Ezra, we did not have a king. Even though we had a king through uh, much of the, uh, um, well, through Bayit Rishon, but we did not have a king. We were living in the world of, um, of the Persians. We returned in the days of uh, Koresh, and, uh, and so it continued. We were, we were not really our own uh, power. After the Persians came the Greeks. After the Hanukkah story, where the Maccabeim, Yehuda Maccabeim, Atisyahu ben Yochanan Kohen Gadol, defeated the Greeks and managed to drive the Greeks out of the country, then the Hashmonaim took the throne. Even though they were not of the Malchut Beit, they were not descendants of David HaMelech, nevertheless, they took the throne. Now, we'll see, there's a little bit of a tension in, um, that exists because they took the throne, because seemingly, on a simple understanding, the throne didn't belong to the Hashmonaim, it belongs to the house of David. But, the original kings of the Hashmonaim, they were very, um, they were very religious. And so even though um, technically they weren't kings, but there really wasn't that much, what happens is, um, what, what, what happens is that um, the, well let, let, me, let me tell you what the Talmud says in Mesechet Kiddushin. We're not yet at, at our um, debate, but the Talmud tells us that Ma'aseh b'Yanai HaMelech Now this is Yanai HaMelech We're not going to run through the whole list of all the kings But one of the Malchei HaChashmonaim His name was Yanai He's also known by some as Yochanan He's also referred to by some as Hurkanas As we know they had different names So the Talmud tells us In Kiddushin Samach Vav That Yanai HaMelech he conquered Shishim Krachim. He went on a, uh, on a mission to go um, conquer some territory. And he won. Ubechazarato hayasameach simcha gedola. Vekara Yisrael. And when he came back from winning the war, he was so happy that he gathered all the sages of Israel. And the Talmud describes to us the kind of party that he made. But you have to remember, at this time, there's the expansion and the growth of the Tzedukim, of the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not agree with the Chachmei Yisrael on, all, on, on how the Torah should be understood. They certainly didn't agree with the Chachmei Yisrael on how the country should be run. The Talmud tells us, Sham echad ish leitz levra ubliya'al. You have, to do, you have to be a very bad person for the rabbis of the Talmud to give you that many insults. 
Leitz Levra Blial. The Elazar ben Poira Shemo, his name was Elazar ben Poira, and he said to Yanei Hamelech, Yanei Hamelech, Libam shall Purushim Alecha. The Pharisees, the Purushim, the rabbis, they don't like you. They wish you to be gone. So he um, so he said, Uma Eser. How do you, prove it? Prove it, because the king was, again, he was together with the Chachmei Yisrael, and the Tzedokim are accusing the Purushim, the Chachmei Yisrael, of being against the king. So he says, oh yeah, you want to prove it? Why don't you put on the tzitz of the Kohen Gadol and come into the, come into the banquet, and you'll see the rabbis will reveal their true opinion of you. So, Yanai, He's a king. As we know, kings are always very paranoid. And so he had to test the theory. And so he goes and he takes the tzitz. That's the, the tzitz goes on the forehead of the Kohen Gadol. And he comes into the party wearing the tzitz. Of course, the Chachmei Yisrael, when they see him walking in with the tzitz, the first thing they do is they all stand up. Because the tzitz is a clay kodesh, like a Sefer Torah, and when it's in the room, you have to stand up. So all the rabbis are standing. And there was one rabbi, Yehuda ben uh, Gedidiah, he said, Yanai HaMelech, Rav Lach Keter Malchut, Hanach Keter Kuhuna Lazaro Shel Aharon. King Yanai, you don't need, you don't need a, a tzitz, you don't be the coin God, um, um, Kohen Gadol, it's enough you have the Keter Malchut. You're the king. You don't need to be the king and the Kohen Gadol. But that wasn't really why he said it. Because if you listen carefully, he said, you don't need to be the Kohen Gadol. Hanach Keter Kuhuna Lezaro Shel Aharon. Leave it for the grandchildren of Aharon. What do you mean? Yanai is a grandson of Aharon. No. Shehayu Omrim because there was some suspicion about his mother. So the rabbi was forwarding this rumor that was going around about Yanai Hamelach. Um, um, so Yanai Hamelach drove out all the rabbis from the party. He said, "All of you, get out of my party. I don't want to hear anything from you anymore about about him." The Gemara goes on to say um, that uh, Yanai Hamelach turned to the Tzedokim and said, "What do you guys want me to do? What's going to happen with the Torah?" Yanai was concerned that if he punished the Chachmei Yisrael, what would happen to the Torah? They said to him, don't worry, we don't need the Chachmei Yisrael, because of course the Tzedokim don't believe in Torah Shabal Pad, they only believe in Torah Shabichtav. So, the Talmud tells us, Vayahargu ko Chachmei Yisrael, vayah haolam mishtomem that Yanai sent a decree and he had rounded up all the rabbis and had them executed. That means that Israel was devoid of Torah teachings. There were many rabbis who survived, most famously, as the Talmud tells us, that Yoshua ben Parachia 
took his entire school and they fled to Alexandria in Egypt and amongst them of course was the, um, his most famous student um, um, a, of that time which was Yeshua Hanotri who also was a student of Yeshua Mabrachia but the Talmud tells us that Hoya Ha'olam Mishtomem at Shimon ben Shatach v'ichzir et ha-Torah le-Yoshna Shimon ben Shatach came back and brought back the Torah now why does Shimon ben Shatach bring back the Torah? so I, we don't have time to read all the passages in the Talmud, but basically the Talmud tells us that some time later, Yanai HaMelech is sitting at the Su'uda, there's a big banquet, and he says, we don't have anybody to do Berkat HaMazon. Where's all the rabbis? So his wife, the wife of Yanai HaMelech, you all know her, um, Shlomtzian HaMalka, Queen Salome Alexandra, she says to him, if I bring you a rabbi, will you promise to keep him safe? And he said, yes, if you bring me a rabbi, I will promise to keep him safe. So she brought her brother, Shimon ben Shetach. And this now leads to a very interesting dynamic. Remember, Yanei HaMelech was originally a big friend of the rabbis, and then, because of this squabble, this incident, he is now sworn enemies of the, uh, the... He and the rabbis are enemies now. He basically tried to execute every rabbi in the world that he could get hold of. And now, we have Shimon ben Shatach, who is his wife's brother, who is the brother-in-law of the king, who is now under the king's protection. And it is under this in this background that we have the following incident which takes place. The Mishnah in Mesechdet Sanhedrin tells us HaMelech Lo Dan Velo Danin Oto A king cannot be a judge nor can he be judged. What this means, obviously every king is a judge. What it means is that the king cannot be a judge in the official courts, nor can he be tried in the official courts. Lo me'id, he can't testify in court. Velo me'idin oto, and you can't testify about him. Says the Talmud, Lo shanu elam malchei Yisrael. Aval Malche Beit David Dan Vedanin Otam says the Talmud that this rule that a king cannot be brought into the courts is not really true of all kings. It depends what kind of king you are. If you are Malchut Beit David, then you can be judged in court. But if you are not Malchut Beit David, if you are Malche Yisrael then you cannot be judged in court. Now, this statement of the Talmud doesn't make any logical sense without knowing what the Talmud says further. It doesn't make sense. The Malchut Beit David, they were usually more um, observant of the Torah than the Malchei Yisrael. So why does the Talmud say that the Malchei Yisrael don't? So says the Talmud, Malchei Yisrael, my time alone. What's the reason why you can't judge Malchei Yisrael? Says the Talmud, Mishum Maaseh Shahaya. 
What happened? Avdei the Yanai Malka Katal Nafsha. The servant, one of the slaves of Yanai, killed a person, committed murder. And Shimon ben Shatach, who will remember, he's the brother-in-law of the king, but he's the head of the Sanhedrin. He says to the Sanhedrin, We are going to judge him. So they sent a letter to Yanai HaMalach saying, Your servant killed someone, send, us, send him to us. So Yanai sent the Eved to the Sanhedrin to face trial. To which Shimon ben Shatach sends to his brother-in-law, No, no, no. We have a rule in the Torah, You cannot bring a slave to court, to trial, unless his master is standing there. So you, the king, you have to show up in court and stand in trial, because as much as the trial is about your slave, the slave as the property of the master, the master is also standing trial. So hear this, Yanai HaMelech shows up in court. The king shows up in court. Shimon ben Shatach says, Yanai HaMelech amod al raglacha v'yaidu b'cha Stand up. Now, everyone I think already understands that Shimon ben Shatach is pushing the line here. Right? He's, he's demanding that Yanai stand like someone who's standing trial. And if you'll say, well, it's not kavod for the king, lo lefanenu ata omed, you're not standing in front of us, ela lefnei amar ata omed, you're standing before God. So again, the head of the Sanhedrin is telling the king that he needs to stand because this is the house of God and you're standing in trial before God and even the king has to be humble before God. What does Yanai HaMelech respond he says, I've heard from you, from Shimon ben Shetach. Okay, now, he doesn't say this, but I'm filling in the blanks. Who has protection, because I gave his sister a promise that I would leave him uh, um, be. I want to hear someone else agree with you. Lo kishetomarata, k'mosheyomru chaviracha. He looked to the right. They all lowered their heads. He looks to the left, and they all lowered their heads. Amar Laham Shimon ben Shatach says to them, You, you're all a bunch of whatevers. God will punish you. And the Talmud tells us that God punished them all. At that time, the rabbis made a decree, and they said, The king and the Sanhedrin don't come together, the king never stands trial. That's the, that's the incident that the Talmud describes. Now, we're going to take a few steps back, and we, we have to talk about this from um, the following perspective. Are the Jewish people, we as a people, what is our primary form, primary system of government? What is our leading system of government? Is it with a king? Is it with a spiritual leader? Is it with the Sanhedrin, a committee? What is the 
best way, if we can have everything go exactly the way we want it to go, what is the best way to run a country? And if you look in our history, it's not so easy to use our story to figure out the way it's supposed to be, as we say in Talmudic terms, lekatchila. Lekatchila, meaning of we want to create it the way we want to create it. When we come into Eretz Israel, who's leading us? Yehoshua, right? All the way back after Moshe. After Yehoshua comes Shoftim. What are Shoftim? Judges? Okay, so Shoftim, right? After Shoftim comes Malachim. Shaul, David, Shlomo, Rechavam, then it splits. But at the same time that we have Yoshua, Shoftim, Malachim, we also have Kohanim Gedolim. Kohanim Gedolim are not usually political leaders. They're just spiritual leaders. So, Typically, and I say typically, there was very little clashing that was happening between the Kohanim Gedolim and the Melech. There was some, but not much. Where the challenge comes up is when you switch from Shoftim, which is the judges, who are the arbiters of the law of the land, based on the system described in the Torah, and then we move into the world of Melachim. Malachim, meaning kings, kings have a different system. They have a different way of running the country. So what, what, are, what are some of the differences between the way that a king would run the country and the way that a Sanhedrin would run the country? When I say Sanhedrin, I'm assuming that Sanhedrin means it's a group of, um, of sages who are analyzing Torah law and developing a country based on that. And you can imagine how often the Sanhedrin are clashing with the king. Because as Rashi from the Talmud, the king can do what he wants, and yet you come up against the Sanhedrin. So what the Talmud tells us is that the Malchet Beit David, they had a tradition where they allowed the Sanhedrin to tell them what to do to a certain extent, or at least that there was a certain level of respect between each other. But the Malchei Yisrael, they did not recognize the authority of the Sanhedrin. And the example of that, interesting, is not brought from Bayit Rishon, when we actually had Malchei Yisrael. The example that the Talmud gives us is from Bayit Sheni. Because in Bayit Sheni, there we had an even more difficult struggle between, in this case, Yanai HaMelech, who is now formerly a friend of the rabbis, but now he's a tzedoki, he's following with the tzedokim, and the rabbis are very, very scared. Remember, he had all these rabbis executed. And even though Shimon ben Shatach is under the protection of the king, the rest of the Sanhedrin they don't feel so safe. So when the king is brought before the court, and he says, and Shimon ben Shatach calls him out and says, you're going to face trial. He says, well, I want to hear it from some of the other, from some of the other judges. And not one of them would say a word because they were all too scared. So the rabbis then said, that here's what we're going to do. We're going to split these two bodies, the king 
and the Sanhedrin will be two separate bodies. The king will never be called into court to face the Sanhedrin so that we don't create that clash between the two. Now, if you remember in the previous class, just a, a few weeks ago, we, we talked about the idea of the, of the sort of the, the struggle that exists between the, in that case, Eliyahu and Achav, those who wanted that Eretz Yisrael should run according to the Torah, and those who wanted it to run the way Achav wanted it to run. Now, th- this is not that kind of debate. Right? This is not that kind of debate. This, has, this is a separate... This is, who is the ultimate authority? Is the king higher than the Sanhedrin? Or is the Sanhedrin higher than the king? And what it sounds like the Talmud is trying to say is that the Sanhedrin is really higher than the king, but because it's going to create too much struggle, we're going to divide them and separate them so that one does not have authority over the other. And that's the approach of the rabbis of the Talmud. So I'd like to ask you, I'm going to put out this question. Why does the Talmud assume that the Sanhedrin has power over the king. It says in the Torah, Som tasim alecha melech, you shall place upon yourself a king. And it says in the Torah that you have to listen to what the king says. In Shmuel, when he tells the people, he says, you want a king? They said, we want a king. And he says, you don't want a king. And they said, no, 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 we do want a king. And he says, well, you know, if you get a king, you know what he can do? And he starts listing all the powers that a king has. And yet, for some reason, we're told that the Sanhedrin, here we're told, that the Sanhedrin has the power over the king. Why is that? Can I say something? I think it's exactly what's happening today. The two branches of government, the judiciary and the executives, are clashing. And everywhere the executive is trying to take over or suppress the judges and judicial systems. Yeah, I think the absolutely the, the you know the, the human beings don't change and the Jewish people don't change and the world doesn't change, but I mean everything changes, but there are those elements they just don't change the same stories again and again and again. And I think this is why we have to look at these stories because we think, oh my goodness, how could this happen? What do you mean, how could this happen? It happens all the time, right? Yes. להגיד שבתקופת המלכים לא היה, כמו שאתה מדבר על, על דוד, שאול, שלמה, לא היה סנדרין, היו נביאים. הנביאים היו אלה שהיו מדברים, כמו נתן הנביא עם דוד או אחרים. כאן מדובר במשהו אחר לגמרי. הסנדרין קם כתוצאה מחוסר. משום שלא היה. עכשיו, הצדוקים היו הדיסנדס של הכוהנים. תקופה ארוכה. Right, well, you know, the, the, the questions of Jewish history, again, the Talmud takes the position that there was a Sanhedrin always. 
There was always a Sanhedrin in the Lishkat Hagazit. And it, it says in the Torah that you have to have a, a Sanhedrin. And so Shoftim v'Shotrim titen l'cha b'chol she'aracha. And there was a big Sanhedrin, as it says in the Torah, v'kamta v'alita alamakom. And there there was a big Sanhedrin. So there was always a Sanhedrin. But you're absolutely right that during Bayit Rishon, they don't seem to be playing a major political role. Right? And it's only in Bayit Sheni when the Anchek Neset Hagdola together with Ezra, bring the Jewish people back, at that point, it's the Sanhedrin that's running the country. Okay. Because there is no Melech, because we are lived under Malchei Paras, right? We lived in the Persian kingdom. So yeah, I, you're, you're absolutely right. However, I, on the other direction, the Talmud does not take the approach that the Tzedukim were the descendants of the Kohanim. The Talmud takes the approach that the Tzedukim were a group of people who developed this um, belief of Torah Shebikhtav without Torah Shebalpeh, and, and not so much that they were connected to the Kohanim, however, one of the major areas of conflict between the Tzedukim and the Purushim was over control of the Beit HaMikdash, there's no question about that. But the fact that Yanai went over to the other side because of this incident which happened where he and the rabbis got into a dispute now created this tension between the Sanhedrin, the rabbis, which was, which was a rabbinical institution who now want, who believed that the king has to run the country according to the laws of the Torah. And this is the first time seemingly in Bayit Sheni that the king is now standing in the Sanhedrin and says, you have no power over me. Right? So, it's, 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 it's a fascinating concept. And it, what's, what's further interesting and, uh, is this is in the Talmud. There is a similar incident described in Josephus. In Josephus, in the Book of Antiquities, in uh, Book 14, Chapter 9, Josephus has a similar incident with, um, with Yanai. Of course, he calls him Horkinus, but um, with Yanai. And Josephus, I, I, I want to make a little bit of a comment on Josephus, just because we're in the Second Temple era. Uh, you know, Josephus is a very interesting character. He is, uh, on one hand, he is someone who has a very, very um, good understanding of what's happening in the world in his time, certainly a very, very um, influential person, someone who knew a lot, and someone who managed somehow to build this connection with the Romans. However, the rabbis have always looked on Josephus with a little bit of suspicion, because, primarily, because he's writing under the watchful eye of the Romans. So, for example, um, Josephus talks very little about Hanukkah. And this has led some historians to suggest that maybe Hanukkah was not like we make it out to be. But, of course, the rabbi's response is that the reason why Josephus writes very little about Hanukkah is because Josephus is writing under the watchful eye of the Romans. And the Romans did not like Hanukkah. 
Because Hanukkah is basically patriotism and rebellion in the eyes of the Romans. And we, we find that the Jews were always very careful what they wrote under the eyes of the Romans. In fact, even the Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, who compiled the Mishnah, according to some opinions, he left out some sections of the Mishnah because the Romans would find it offensive. So, for example, Hanukkah is also not really mentioned in the Mishnah. It's a few uh, words here and there. Or, for example, in the Mishnah, you know, they left out Mesechet Gerim. And Mesechet, there's a few others that the, that the Romans did not like the, the system, and so they, they, they just, um, they did not put it in the Mishnah. So Josephus too. However, generally speaking, Josephus is a historian, and he's trying to record the history to pass it along. But Josephus is not just a historian. Josephus is also um, someone who's very opinionated, and someone who's trying to accomplish something. And that is, he's trying to give a good impression of the Jews to the world. For example, Josephus wrote a whole book called Contra Apion, a whole book to go against those critics of Judaism. However, in this process of defending Judaism, he says some things that we are we question his motives about. And so Josephus ends up a very interesting character in the eyes of the rabbis. But I'd like to read to you, if I may, Josephus gives us the recording of the speech that Shimon ben Shetach gave in the court. I can't tell you if Josephus wrote this on his own because he wanted to dramatize and tell this story, or if Josephus had a tradition of this um, a recording, or, as we know, in the Sanhedrin, there were always scribes who were writing down, maybe Josephus got hold of the transcripts, of this. But I'm going to read to you, it's very short, very quick, I'm just going to read to you the speech that Josephus records that Shimon ben Shetach se- um, spoke here before Yanai. But one thing which is shocking is that Josephus reveals to us the name of the Eved. The name of the Eved who was a murderer and was being called into court, the name of the Eved was a man called Hurdus, Herod. And Hurdus, as you know, was at first an Eved of the... Uh, uh, he was a, a, a servant of the... Right? He was an Edomi. Later, when the Romans had had enough of the Hashmanaim, they wanted that it should be someone from Israel, because it's got to be someone homegrown, but it can't be someone um, like the Hashmanaim, because that's too much trouble, but it can't be a foreigner. So they put Antipater and, and Herod, the Herodian family becomes... But at this point, Herod is simply... And this is what Josephus records... And I quote, When affairs stood thus, one whose name was Sameas, which we call him Shimon, a righteous man he was, and for that reason, above all fear, he rose up and said, O you that are assessors with me, meaning my fellow judges, and O thou that art our king, referring to Yana. I neither have ever myself known such a case, 
nor, I nor do I suppose that any one of you can name its parallel, meaning none of us have ever seen anything like this, that one who is called to take his trial by us ever stood in such a manner before us, meaning that Shimon ben Shetach is upset at Herod's attitude in court. Why? So he explains, again, we, the Talmud doesn't tell us this. It's Josephus who's telling us this. But everyone who, soever he be, that comes to be tried by this Sanhedrin, presents himself in a submissive manner. When people show up in court, you're supposed to come humble. And like one that is in fear of himself, and that endeavors to move us to compassion. Usually when you come before the court, you're hoping that the court will be nice to you, and so you come with humility, asking for compassion, with his hair disheveled and in a black and mourning garment. But this admirable man, Herod, who is accused of murder, and called to answer so heavy an accusation, stands here clothed in purple, and with the hair of his head finely trimmed, and with his armed men about him, that if we shall condemn him by our law, he may slay us, and by overbearing justice may himself escape death? Does, does Herod think that by showing up in fancy clothes, and with his goons, with his soldiers around him, that he can be safe? Yet, do not I make this complaint against Herod himself? He is to be sure more concerned for himself than for the laws. But my complaint is against yourselves, meaning I'm upset with you, the Sanhedrin, and your king, who give him license to do so. This is not a trial of Herod. This is a trial of Yanai. Because he needs to send his Eved, his servant, to be subject to our court. However, take you notice that God is great and that this very man whom you are going to absolve and dismiss for the sake of Horkinus, meaning the king, you're too scared of the king and you're going to let him go, will one day punish both you and your king himself also. Shimon ben Shatach lays down a curse against the king and against the Sanhedrin. And he says... You allowed the king and, the and Herod to make a mockery of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is supposed to be the most powerful body of law in the land, and even the king should be subject to it. And I curse you, says Shimon ben Shetah, that, that Herod will one day come to power, and he will kill all of you. It's amazing, right, that he called it. Who believed at that time that Herod would one day sit as the king? He was an Eved. I mean, he was an, a noble Eved, right? He had power. But he was essentially an Eved. And Shimon ben Shatach, and that's what happened. That's Josephus. And, and, and this is how Josephus finishes. He says, Nor did Sameas mistake in any part of his prediction. For when Herod had received the kingdom, he slew all the members of the Sanhedrin. And Hyrcanus himself also. The only person he left alive was Sameas. He had great honor for him, on account of his righteousness. Which is ironic, because Herod ends up killing them all, except one person. Who? The one who stood up against him? So let me ask you, why do you think, when Herod becomes the king, does he not kill the one person who spoke up against him? 
because he thought he is a, he is very great. He has power, and he can't. Well, maybe he will help him. Well, it doesn't. He, it doesn't seem like he ever believes that Shimon ben Shetach is going to um, ever side with him. Now, I, I, I want to point out, there's, this is a very difficult story to place historically, because, because um, Josephus seems to, by, by making this not so much a story about Yanai Horkinus and some unnamed Eved, he seems to be making the story much more a story about Herod. Now, the problem is that Shimon ben Shetach is not around according to our tradition. He's not around when Herod becomes king. Because if you remember that Shimon ben Shetach is, is much earlier, it, Shimon ben Shetach is going to be basically after Yanai dies, um, Shlomtzian Amalka becomes the queen and she rules alongside her brother and the Talmud tells us that that was a wonderful time for, for the Sanhedrin, for the religious uh, people because she was very supportive of her brother and, uh, and uh, Shema Ben Shetach was able to, to keep the country in, and, you know, running according to the laws of the Torah it's only when, when Shlomtzian Amalka um, is no longer queen and um, of course her her children take over, and everyone knows the story, that's when the uh, world falls apart. But, so Josephus, um, there are those who want to say that Josephus has, is not referring to Shimon ben Shetach, but Shammai. So, I, I'm just, for any historians, you can look it up, that's, that's not really our topic of discussion. Our topic of discussion is, whoever it was, it's a clear here we have Shimon ben Shatach, who is calling out the king and the Sanhedrin and saying that, that the Sanhedrin is supposed to have enough guts and strength to stand up to the king. And the king is supposed to have the humility to lower himself beneath the Sanhedrin. And because they wouldn't, he cursed them all. And he curses them all. And according to Josephus... Uh, if you have a choice between the details between Josephus and the Talmud, it, it, I find it really interesting that uh, probably as much as I believe that the words of the Talmud are true, that's about as much faith as historians will have that the words of Josephus are true. There's like a little bit of an of a emunah uh, um, that, that they have in everything that Josephus says. But, but our topic, really. So now the question becomes, and I like the way that you put it before, we have the executive branch and the judicial branch, and that's really what it comes down to, except it's a little different, because the, the, in this case, the judicial branch is a religious branch in this particular case. And so their system is the system of the Torah. And as long as the king is religious it's all going to work perfectly fine together. It's when the king is no longer following the Torah and is no longer subjecting himself to the Torah. Now we have a question, who do the people follow? And does the Sanhedrin have power over the king? And it's a strange thing that what was the solution the rabbi said? They can't work together. Forget it. You can't bridge this gap. When you have someone like Yanai HaMelech there cannot be a way to get along with, with the Sanhedrin. And so we're just going to 
um, say that the king just ne- should never be brought into court. Now, if, if we fast forward today, let's, let's fast forward to today. And again, this is not, we're not looking at this from a religious versus the non-religious. That's not our subject because it's irrelevant to this question. The question is when you have a country, is it better run by one person who has a Sanhedrin to advise him or is it better run by a group of people who have a king to execute what they decide? Which is a better system and why? So we're going to take a few minutes and feel free to offer um, um, any insight on this. So I'd like to quote a few passages from our sages, some ideas where they struggle with this question. Do you get a better result by having all the power centralized and then dispersed or is it better if it comes from multiple sources and then becomes unified into one place in terms of execution? Clearly what uh, the system where we live, it's, uh, it's not one person, it's not let's say the president or the prime minister. You have different branches that um, uh, have to have different responsibilities. So in a democracy, it's clearly not that one person is in charge of everybody. Yeah, which is that the right way to do it? The the the, the, well, the debate with that, the reason why people are against this concept, is because it seems that nothing ever gets done. When you have an executive branch and a judicial branch, if they are of common ground, a common opinion, a common um, theories, then lots can get done. But what happens when you have an executive branch that is um, completely off in a different direction than the judicial branch and basically what you're going to have is a stalemate is, is can you have a country that, that, that runs with that kind of system what is the alternative the alternative is to give power to the executive like a king that they can do everything no, no absolutely not. Okay, so I, I hear what you're saying and the Talmud actually takes that position because the Talmud has a long discussion on whether having a king is a good thing or a bad thing, and it seems from the conclusion of the Talmud that having a king is never a good idea. It's always better to have a Sanhedrin, which is a committee, which means a group of people, and that's what we would call the, the um, you know, the, um, um, in, in the United States it would be Congress. They, they, they make the laws. So then, why do we have a king for the king would just be like, you know, to run the wars, to, to be like a figurehead, like you would have today in... Uh, uh, no, it, it wouldn't be as, as like it is in Great Britain, where, where um, you know, there's really no power there, but it would be with real power, but the true power lays in the courts. The problem with the courts, the problem with the courts is that there are no individuals with that kind of power, it's in the courts, it's a group of people. How do you ever get anything resolved there either? So, what we have here is a big struggle, 
that's that's the story that the Talmud is describing here, and the Talmud basically ends up saying that uh, that there was a uh, stalemate, and Shimon ben Shatach said, "This is this is it. It's over. The country is over. We've lost our king, and we've lost our Sanhedrin." Right when he curses them both, and it comes true, it sounds like he's saying, "You're all you're all rotten. You're all wrong." So what should it have been? He's saying because it should have been that the king should subject himself to the Sanhedrin. Shimon ben Shatach is giving this ruling. Says the Ran, Rabbeinu Nisim, one of the great Talmudists who lived 800 years ago. He says, this is one of the rabbis who lived 800 years ago, said, Shimon ben Shatach is wrong. He's wrong because even if you want the Sanhedrin to have the ultimate power, even if you believe that the power really belongs to the Sanhedrin, who are the bearers of the law, you don't challenge the king that way. He should never have created the confrontation between the Sanhedrin and the king. That this is all Shimon ben Shatach's doing because he wanted to prove a point and because he had the protection, so he felt safe, so he went up against... Why was he expecting that the other rabbis would have enough um, audacity to stand with him? And he put everyone in a difficult position. Says the Ran, Shema Ben Shatach was wrong for doing that. That's an interesting thing to... Yeah, yes. And um, I also agree with the Ran because Shimon ben Shetach humiliated King Yanai. If he didn't even ask him to stand, if he was just sitting by and he was treating with respect, all of this won't happen. Right. It's the humiliation that caused the friction between the Sanhedrin and the king. Right. Right, that, that extra line, it could be, if, and that's why our rabbis, they didn't tell, they, the rabbis don't tell us who is right and wrong, right? The, the rabbis just tell us the incident, and that's why the Ran, Rabbi Nunisim, we call him the Ran, that's why he says, I think Shimon ben Shatach was wrong. But you know who thinks Shimon ben Shatach was right? Josephus. Right? Interesting. Josephus makes it seem like that this is why Herod. Herod looks at Shimon ben Shatach and says, that's someone who I want in my country. Even though Herod has all the rabbis executed. Later on. Later on, he has all the rabbis executed, except for the one rabbi. You know why? Because that rabbi has integrity. That's what Josephus says. Meaning that, that Josephus seems to understand that Shimon ben Shatach was the only rabbi who deserved the respect. And that's why his predictions come true, because the Sanhedrin have to be willing to stand up to the king, even if it means risking their life. So we, what we have is essentially a debate between different viewpoints, and obviously um, the Josephus is not a Talmudic scholar, but he lives you know, 1,200 years earlier. So, but but Josephus seems to understand, and that seems to be the way everyone's telling the story, that Herod actually respected Shimon ben Shatach 
for, be, for having the integrity and standing up for what's right. So it almost comes out a very strange compromise. A very strange compromise. That the king and the Sanhedrin, there is a struggle. But if the Sanhedrin are strong and they have integrity and they stand up for what they are and they're honest and righteous, then they have the power over the king. But if they are, that's the way he seems to be understanding the story, but if they are a corrupt body of, of people who are involved in politics and self-promotion and self-preservation, like can happen very often to a judicial branch, to, that can happen to, a, to a, um, um, any branch of the government, can fall into corruption. At that point... Either the king should have power over them, or if they're both corrupt, then let them just act independently of each other. You know, the, there, there are a number of struggles that take place between Shimon ben Shetach and his brother-in-law Yanai. There are other stories in the Talmud that are described. Uh, famously, there's a story that, um, that there were 300 Nazirim. A Nazir is someone who takes a vow of Nazirut, and when you finish bringing your, your vow of Nazirut, you have, to, you have to bring three offerings, three karbanot. And uh, the Talmud tells us that there were 300 Nazirim who were too poor, because many Nazirim in those days, you can imagine in those days there were a lot of Nazirim, and they were too poor to bring karbanot, and they came to Shimon ben Shatach, and they said, what do we do? We can't afford it. So he went to see his brother-in-law, Yanai, and says to him, would you, would you uh, help out these Nazirim? And Yanai says, well, what do you want from me? He says, well, could you help them pay for their karbanot so that they can finish their Nazirut and they can be free? And Yanai says to him, you know, why should I do it all myself? You know, why, why did they take vows of Nizirut if they can't afford it? So Shimon ben Shetach says, how about we do a matching campaign? This is the first matching campaign in Jewish history, like a little GoFundMe, where, where Shimon ben Shetach says, if you cover half, I'll cover half. So Yanai says, okay, if you'll fundraise for half, I'll cover the other half. And Yanai covers half of the karbonot and gives him the money, and then Shimon ben Shatach goes and takes 150 of the Nazirim, and he is matir their Nazirut. He annuls their vow. He's, we can be mefer nadarim retroactively, so he annulled their vow of Nazirut, and so they didn't owe karbonot. So they came to Yanai and they said, did you hear what Shimon ben Shetach said? What he did? So Yanai calls his brother-in-law and says, what are you doing? And Shimon ben Shetach says, well listen, you, you did your, you gave them money for your half, and I used my money, which is my chokhmah, my Torah, to free the other half. Now, Yanai did not like that, there's a whole discussion about that, and that's a struggle between the rabbis kind of using their rabbinical power and trying to balance that against the money of the political power of the king. But I, we're not talking about that story. Just bringing it up to understand what level of tension there was going on between Shimon ben Shetach and Yanai. Because Shimon ben Shetach feels that he needs to stand up to Yanai that if he doesn't stand up right now, the Jewish people are doomed. Because Yanai 
was a supporter of the rabbis, and for hundreds of years the rabbis have basically been the leaders of the Jewish people. And then all of a sudden the Chashmonaim become kings, and they're supportive of the rabbis, but now that, that uh, Yanai has become a tzedoki, for the first time in the Second Commonwealth, for the first time, we find ourselves at odds. Shema ben Shetach feels obligated to stand up in front of everyone and push back. And all the stories in the Talmud, all of them, are him pushing back against, and he feels that it's not just because his sister got a, got a promise of protection for him. He feels that if everyone would stand up to the king, that the king would go back into his corner. And that's the way it's supposed to be. At least Shimon ben Shetach thinks that that's the way it's supposed to be. Which means that Shimon ben Shetach, who is the head of the Sanhedrin, feels that Judaism does not recognize a king to have the ultimate authority. Asks, asks Rabbi Reuven Margoliot, who is a great rabbi who lived in the 20th century in Israel, Rabbi Margoliot, he asks a question, and he, I mean, so he asks a question, and he says, well then how come the kings were always judges? How come in the times of the first Beit HaMikdash, the kings were judges, and it didn't seem like they were clashing against any, any Torah law. Why didn't the rabbis take the judgment away from the kings in the ancient days as well? And he wants to suggest that the Torah itself wants the kings to be executioners uh, I, I shouldn't use that word, to, 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 to be fulfilling the laws of the Torah. As you know, every king is required to carry a Sefer Torah on him wherever he goes. It's one of the 613 commandments of the Torah, one that we will not be able to fulfill unless you become a Melech, and that is that the king has to carry around the Sefer Torah. So, what Rabbi Ruvay Margoliot said is that the original concept of Som Tasim Alecha Melech is that the king is not an independent secular leader. The king is supposed to be a religious leader. That's how Shimon ben Shetach sees it. And when Yanai says no longer religious leader, I'm just going to run the country the way I want to run, Shimon ben Shetach seems to be trying to take away the power from the king. Essentially what you have is almost a kind of coup, an attempted coup that takes place here, between the Sanhedrin not trying to overthrow the king, they're not trying to get rid of him, which is not a good idea, but what they're trying to do is squash his power. And again... Oppress him. Right. Right. But again, what we have is a disagreement, and I find it ironic. If you were to ask me to guess who would pick which side, I would have guessed that the rabbis would be on Shimon ben Shetach's side. And Josephus, I would expect, would be on Herod's side. 
But that's not the way it goes. It's really interesting. The Ran, Rabbeinu Nisim, one of the commentaries says on the Rabbeinu Nisim, and I quote, Eneni ma'amin shepalta kul maso shal Rabbeinu Agadol Rabbeinu Nisim zechrono levracha bitu izeh. I can't believe that Rabbeinu Nisim would even write this. That's how shocking this is. But Rabbeinu Nisim seems to take the side of Yanai and Herod and says, and says that Shimon ben Shatach shouldn't have done this. You know, I, I know I'm basically out of time, so I'm going to try to finish with this. This is a very, very important dispute, as you can imagine. It, and it's not just true of the country, when you have a single, you know, a prime minister versus the Knesset. Right? This has been a struggle, always. And, and if you go back in time, there's always this ongoing debate. But more than that, even within um, other areas, in general, where is the best kind of leadership? Is it better if it's one person who's in charge and they have um, a lot of people who are um, working for this one person? Or is it better if you have a group of people in charge, and again, the king becomes the one who fulfills this? This is a debate in the Talmud. There are other sources for this. There's other places to look. But this debate, this struggle between um, Yanai and Shimon ben Shatach is probably the best example of the Sanhedrin directly coming up against the Melech. And I'm going to finish with one final question that I don't have the answer to. But you're welcome to um, think about this question, which is, how much of what Shimon ben Shatach is doing is because of the fact that Yanai executed so many rabbis? That this is a kind of vengeance, feeling like maybe if the, maybe if the king would have just ignored the Sanhedrin, maybe it wouldn't be such a big deal. But when the, rabbi, when the king kills all the rabbis and only leaves a small number left in the world, is it okay for the rabbis to be supportive of such a king? Is it okay for the rabbis to be respectful of the king? Or are you supposed to challenge him? Or maybe you're not supposed to challenge him, but it was just too hard for Shimon ben Shatach to st- sit by and watch as Yanai and Herod make a mockery of the, of the courts. Alright, so um, unless uh, there's any final thoughts. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 